We're at the tail end of 2022, and it's time for the top 10 predictions of 2023. This is my personal list. This is 10 predictions of things that I think will happen that I don't necessarily think are just consensus. These aren't predictions of things that everybody thinks is going to happen. Some of these are a little bit more spicy than others. So I'm excited to go into this video. Last year, I also made a prediction video, and I got six of them right, two of them around half right, and then two wrong. So I think my accuracy is okay, but I want to improve this year. I really want to nail these predictions for 2023. Now, having said that, none of this is guaranteed. I'm making predictions here, not guarantees. So some of these could be wrong. I would not make any market bets or any type of money movements based off of these predictions. Now, let's go ahead and start off with number one. I think this one right off the bat is a little bit controversial. I personally believe that in 2023, investing will get more difficult. Not easier, but more difficult. It's gotten more difficult over the past year. And a lot of things have already changed. We've seen this happen. We've seen the days of inflated valuations come to an end. Seeing the days of being able to throw a dart at a random group of small tech companies or small market cap growth companies and have them randomly do really well for no apparent reason, those days are gone. And not only are they gone, they're not coming back anytime soon. I don't see the days of the random DoorDashes, Pelotons, Tattoo Chefs, Palantirs, Teladocs, these type of companies making back some marvelous recovery over the next year and going back up to inflated valuations. I don't think that's going to happen. I think these companies will likely continue to trade down until their fundamentals improve dramatically. I think going into next year, it's going to become more apparent that the days of easy money are just over. They're over for a good while. And I think that it's more important now than ever that investors focus as much as they can on truly durable companies that have good cash flows, good business models, and good valuations. I think that these type of companies are the ones that investors will be forced into eventually. And the investors that are still clinging to hope that their unprofitable company will have some magical recovery, I think they're going to be clinging on for a while until they eventually get so discouraged, they sell out, they give up, and they move into ETFs. I see a lot of that happening in the future. So that is prediction number one. I think investing next year will get harder not easier. I think prospective returns are lower. I think the market is more discerning between good companies and bad companies. I think investors are looking more at cash flows and fundamentals than hyped up glorious stories about companies down the road. Investors now are more discerning because we have other options. The stock market is not the only way to make returns. And since that's the case, investors do not need to take as much risk. Now, prediction number two goes along with prediction number one. When we look at the two different camps of investing, we have the value camp and then we have the growth camp. We have the Teslas and Amazons and Googles and Microsofts, and we have the Cisco's, Home Depot's, we have the Walmarts and Costco's, right? We have we have high multiple companies that are reliant on fast growth. We have lower multiple companies that are reliant on stable, predictable cash flows. And these are two different baskets of companies. Now, I think that in 2023, the value companies will outperform the growth companies. I think they'll do it once again. They did it in 2022. If we look at the results here, the US dividend equity ETF, which is more of a value tilt, these are companies that have paid growing dividends for over a decade, 10 years plus. It's many of the companies you know, the Home Depots, the Pepsi, the value consumer staple companies, very defensive. This ETF has done really good over the past five years. And year to date, it's down 6% while paying a 4% dividend. So basically flat, maybe down 2%. Then we have the growth ETF from Schwab. This slices the S&P 500 in half, and it invests only in the faster growing half. This is down 32%. 
So a lot of the QQQ companies are in this one, but also any company that's growing at a decent speed. I think this will continue into 2023. I think that value and dividend paying stocks and low multiple companies, they're going to outperform high multiple companies. And I think that the high multiple companies are going to continue to come down in multiple. Now, in terms of the very long term, in terms of 10 or 20 years out, I'm not making predictions on that. I think that SCHG is still a great growth ETF. I think that growth has a place in everybody's portfolio over a long period of time, but I'm making predictions on 2023. And I think that this big market change that we've been going through over the past year, it's going to take more than a year to reverse. I think it's going to be basically the same thing for the next year. Companies that have low multiples and stable, predictable cash flows, they're going to do better than companies that have higher multiples and they're reliant on a lot of growth and a lot of future projections. And likewise, in terms of my investments in my portfolio, I think that my passive income portfolio, the dividend growth one, is going to outperform the story fund in 2023. That'd be my guess. Don't know for sure, but I have a strong hunch that's going to be the case. Prediction number three is pretty simple. I think that headline inflation will be below 3% by the end of 2023. It's currently at like 7%. So this is a pretty bold prediction. I think it's going to be cut in less than half by the end of next year. But I really think this will happen. When I look at it, again, I'm no economist here. This could go either way. But I agree with the economist, Jeremy Siegel. I think that he's spot on with this. When you look at the used prices of cars, they've gone down. When you look at home prices, they've gone down and they're trending downwards every single month. When you go into grocery stores, things have either flattened or have gone down in price a little bit. There's only a couple items that are still going up, maybe like eggs and a couple different exceptions. When I look around, most prices of most things have stopped going up as much, and in many cases, they're going down. And I think that the Fed is trying to overcompensate for starting late. I think that they're trying to push up the interest rates as high as possible. But in 2023, I think that this will continue. I think the trend of inflation going down month after month will continue. And my guess is I think it will be below 3% at the end of the year. That is lower than what the Fed is currently predicting. Prediction number four, and this one is bound to make a lot of people upset, a lot of Tesla investors upset. But unfortunately, my prediction is that Tesla will continue to do poorly in 2023. Let's go ahead and take a look at the stock here. The last thing that you want to hear after a tough year where your stock is down 69% year to date, that is, that's tough. And I genuinely don't take, you know, it's not something where I enjoy other people having bad fortune with their stock. That's genuinely not something I enjoy seeing. I like it when people make money, even in stocks that I don't own. But when I look at Tesla here, there's a couple things that I think are concerning about the setup for next year. First of all, the company's trading at a, a pretty decent valuation. It's not crazy high, but a 28.8. That's a pretty high PE ratio. But it's even higher when you consider the industry that the company competes in, which is the auto industry, cars. I know that the argument here is that Tesla is more than a car company, but it trades at a 28 PE ratio, while other companies like Ford, again, Tesla and Ford are different, but Ford trades at a 7 Ford PE ratio. So it has a much higher PE ratio, but that isn't the biggest problem with Tesla. That's not what I think is the biggest issue. The biggest issue, I think, is that we're set up in a market cycle that I think is very unfavorable for Tesla as a company. We look at the prices of used cars here, and they are declining every single month, going down further and further. We had the huge increase in car prices from, I, I think, a lot of different factors. A lot of people are locked down, and then they got their stimulus check. They had extra money. Interest rates were super low. They could get car loans for 1% or 2% some cases. 
And all of that has changed. We have a lack of stimulus. We have interest rates going up. We have an influx of people now getting cars and re-inventory of them. And now we're seeing used car prices go down dramatically. And I think this does affect Tesla to some extent, even though it's debatable if it's in the same group as these companies, but I think it does affect them. So think about this setup for a minute here. We have used car prices basically in free fall, used car markets crashing right now, month after month after month going in decline, and the used car market does have a huge impact on the new car market. If a used car that's similar to a new one is selling for half the cost of the new one, the new cars have to lower their prices. That's how the market works. And we have used car prices going down, but then we also have the added impact of Elon Musk having a negative effect on Tesla's brand value over the past year, especially with his ownership of Twitter. Like I've said many times, owning a social media business is difficult. You get dirty. You have to deal with politics. You have to deal with things that aren't scientific or mathematic, but they're political based. And anytime you jump into politics, it hurts your image. You get mud on yourself. Elon Musk has done that. He's gotten some mud on himself. It's affected the brand value of Tesla to some degree. And I think at the wrong time, at the very wrong time, because we're going into tougher economic conditions and in tough economic conditions, companies like car companies, Tesla typically have a difficult time. In the case of Tesla specifically, we haven't seen how this one company has done, but we know from history that if it's anything, anything like other car companies, they don't do well. They simply do not do well during tough economic cycles. And we have almost a quadruple whammy here. We have used car prices coming down from their very expensive prices. Remember, they're actually going up. People are making money on used cars. That's reverting, and that's not going to help Tesla. We have Elon Musk affecting the brand value in a negative way by owning a social media company. Hopefully, he'll step down and, and start to focus on things that are more uplifting and things that help his reputation more. But we also have some other factors here. We have home prices ticking downwards. That has a wealth effect. When your home goes down in value, you feel less wealthy. When you feel less wealthy, you're less likely to buy expensive new cars. We have the stock market going down. That also has a wealth effect. When people see their money vanishing away in the stock market, again, they're less likely to go out and buy a brand new vehicle. And we have all these things happening at the same time. So in my opinion, I think that in 2023, it's unlikely that Tesla has some massive rebound. Maybe that will happen, but I think this setup is very difficult. I think it's unlikely. Over the long term, who knows, but this is my 2023 prediction. Now, prediction number five is regarding a company in my portfolio. It's one of my favorite companies, one that a lot of investors don't like, and that's okay if you don't like it, but it's Netflix. I think that Netflix will generate in 2023, I think it will generate over $2.5 billion in free cash flow. That's my prediction. And this is a company that a lot of people say is not free cash flow positive and it will never be free cash flow positive. I disagree with that. I think it's going to be free cash flow positive in 2022. So when we see this quarter's results, I think it will be over the whole course of the year free cash flow positive. But I think going into next year, I think for all of 2023, it'll generate $2.5 billion of free cash flow. So let's go ahead and look at a couple things here. Netflix has been one of these companies like Tesla that's had a very tough year. The stock price is down 51%. So it's doing slightly better than Tesla, but it's doing worse than most companies. And this is one of those stocks that, that you have to make a distinction between the stock and the company. The stock is highly unpredictable highly jarringly volatile. I don't think that most investors should own Netflix. I think it's not suited for most people's investment uh, investment styles and, and their tolerance of volatility. In my case, I've invested in this company. I'm gonna be holding it for like 10 years. I really plan to. Uh, I think it's gonna be an inevitable winner in the long term. 
but I'm not shocked to see a lot of volatility because the story and narrative has changed dramatically. The beginning of the year, this company had two massive drops. If we look at it, this is where Bill Ackman was buying into the company. He's like, I'm going to buy into the dip, right? We had this massive dip. He's like, Netflix is a great company. It has all these subscribers, subscription income. Then this happened, came down here, and Bill Ackman was immediately like, I'm out. I, I don't know what's going on here. The company's less predictable than I thought. He owned the company for a total of three months and he bounced. Now, I've been buying Netflix for a lot longer than a year. I've been buying this company at 300, 350, 400, 450. I've even paid as high as $500. Not much in that range, but my average is around 370. So I have a pretty high average on this company. Now, what's happened is the company came down in value like crazy and then it started to go back up. In the past six months, it's up 56%. So it's actually now recovered quite a bit, um, but overall, it still trades at a, a pretty premium valuation at a 29 Ford PE. If we look at it, the big story of Netflix has always been that this company is not gonna be a free cash flow positive company that generates growing cash flows. And that's where I think investors have it wrong. What we can look at here is the free cash flow of Netflix year by year. We know that this company in 2014, to 2019, they just had growing negative free cash flows. And the big bear thesis was this company will never make money. It has a business model that will never make money. But Reed Hastings knew that he needed to make big investments to pay off later. The way this works is they invest money into paying for content. That content that they invest, let's say in 2015, gets seen three years later, 2016. So they invest all the money up front and then they see the returns on that three years down the road. That's because you have to produce the films, you have to film it on location, you have to edit it, you have to advertise it, market it, then it gets slotted in the release schedule and boom, you have a film that you paid for, 2015, you put out the cash then, you're getting seen in 2018, three years down the road. So there's this lagging effect for all this content. And all these investments are starting to finally pay off. All this cash flow that they put into the business to grow the amount of subscribers, we're starting to see that happen. And I think what's gonna happen is in 2020, the free cash flow was $2 billion. That's because they had a halt production and that shows the operating leverage of Netflix. When they slowed down production just slightly for a couple months because of COVID, they generated $2 billion of free cash flow. Since 2020, Netflix is substantially bigger with almost 100 million additional subscribers. They've done price hikes. They have an ad tier. They're continuing to grow. And I think that the operating leverage will allow them in 2023 to actually surpass how much money they made in 2020. I think they'll generate well over $2 billion, up to $2.5 billion in 2023. Now, if we zoom out and change this to quarterly, so we're looking at the most recent data, we can also look at the numbers we have so far in 2022. We have three quarters reported in 2022. Q1 was $800 million of free cash flow, Q2 was $12 million, and Q3 was $471 million. All three quarters this year are free cash flow positive. And next year, it should be the same thing to a much bigger extent. So I'm not expecting Netflix's multiple to increase indefinitely. I don't see it going above a 34 PE ratio, but I do think the free cash flow generation is going to surprise to the upside. And again, my prediction is $2.5 billion in free cash flow in 2023. Moving on, we have prediction number six, Texas Roadhouse. One of my big investments in my dividend portfolio, 
will continue to outperform expectations and the market in 2023. And I think it will grow its earnings per share by over 10%. And I say this knowing that we're probably going into a tough economic condition. The reason that I make an exception for Texas Roadhouse as a sit-down restaurant, that type of investment in a tough economic cycle, is because of some particular specific characteristics about the company. When you look at different companies in different industries, in every industry, even tough industries like sit-down restaurants that typically do not do well during recessionary environments, there's usually a couple of companies that really shine. They outdo the rest of the companies. They outcompete. And I think that Texas Roadhouse will be one of those companies. If we look at the actual data here, we have Texas Roadhouse's earnings per share per year. And notice how there's really no huge negative impact in 2009, no big negative impact in 2000. Both recessions, this company basically sailed through. And I think the reason is not random luck or mistake. I think it's because of the value proposition of the company. Every restaurant gives their customers a value proposition. It's how much food and how good of service you get for the price you pay. Texas Roadhouse does not strive to be the most premium, the best steak on the market anywhere in the world. I'm sure there's some stuffy restaurant that you can go to and get your $70 steak. That's not what this company is. What it is, is the best value proposition. You get a pretty good meal. It's a decent meal and you get a lot of food for a really decent price. It's a place people can take their family and they don't feel like they're broke after they're leaving. And they feel like they got a lot of hot food that's at a pretty, pretty good quality. So it offers, I think, a better value proposition than almost any other company, especially in the restaurant category, but also in the quick service restaurant category. We have companies like Chipotle charging $10 for a burrito some chopped up chicken and and rice and beans. You have this company giving you steaks that are slightly more expensive. So I think this is the reason why this company is able to execute so well during tough environments. It trades at, a, I think, a low valuation. I still think it's cheap. It has a high free cash flow yield. And then on top of that, they're doing share buybacks. This is something new. If we switch over to quarterly here, we can see the most recent data. This company is buying back shares opportunistically whenever the price goes down. So when the company has the stock price fall, the executives of the company say now's a good time to do share buyback. And they start scooping up shares of the company. And that's on top of paying a growing dividend that's growing at 15% per year. That's about two times the average of the S&P 500, which is, again, something investors look for during, during tough times. They look for the dividend. They look for the stable, reliable cash flow. So Texas Roadhouse is a company that I, again... I think it would outperform last year, and it looks like it has. It's up 7% year to date. I'm making a similar prediction that I think this company will outperform the market over the next year, and I think it will do it probably by a wide margin. But again, I'm biased. I have a big investment in this company. Invest at your own risk. This is a prediction, not a guarantee. Number seven, I predict that in 2023, it'll become more clear to investors, not less, but more clear that Amazon's AWS is winning the cloud wars by a pretty big margin. We're seeing this narrative here growing and an incorrect narrative that Google's catching up, Microsoft is catching up. We have Cisco and Alibaba Cloud and all these companies are catching up. And the cloud is really not as good of a business. It's basically a commodity and any company can do it. And I think we're going to see a bit of a reversal of that growing story. What I've seen here is data that shows what's going on with these cloud companies. We can compare, for example, Google against AWS. Google's in third place. AWS is in first place currently. We have Google Cloud Pro and their amount of commitments over the past two years. And then we have AWS's. Commitments are the amount of deals that they've made with companies. 
that are signing a contract above one year. It's kind of a guidance of future revenue of the cloud business. And we have in red AWS's commitments. We have in blue Google's cloud. Now, what you can see here, if you look closely at this chart, is that in 2021, Google Cloud was growing theirs. And then when it came to Q4, their commitments basically just flatlined, completely flatlined all throughout 2022. So even though Google Cloud is growing revenue, they're not making as many commitments. They don't have as many contracts growing above a year. They're basically just using their current customer base and growing with that customer base. AWS, on the other hand, you can see the difference in the trend. This is the tale of two cloud companies. AWS is likewise grew in 2021, but in 2022, their commitments also continued to grow. AWS is more effective at growing their amount of contracts. And that's because of the inherent advantage of being first and having the already biggest, most established, most known, most used platform. There's big network effects to it. AWS is benefiting from that. Now we can also involve Microsoft here because a lot of people think that Microsoft is just gonna crush AWS, right? This is their wheelhouse. They're the tech company. They have all the connections with the big, big tech companies. And they're basically the only company by most investors' thoughts, they're the only company that could really surpass AWS. If we look at this report, it goes over that Microsoft doesn't break out Azure's financials in dollar terms. So Microsoft just doesn't let us know what's going on or how much money they're making with Azure, their cloud program, nor does it break out Azure in its disclosures of revenue backlogs from enterprise software deals. So while we can see this chart here, the commitments from both Google and AWS, we can't see with Microsoft. Now they technically report it, but they just include a bunch of other stuff to make it so we really don't know what the Azure business is doing. And that's a, a common strategy of obfuscation. They're basically trying to intentionally make the data difficult to understand. They said that all of their cloud stuff, everything that has anything to do with the cloud with Microsoft, totaled 180 billion. That's more than AWS at 105 billion. But again, AWS is just AWS. It's not everything they do in the cloud. This is more than just Azure, this 180 billion. So we don't know how much the Azure part is in this 180 billion. And then there's another entire article about how Microsoft intentionally makes it as difficult as possible to determine their numbers. And on this subject, there was a leaked report from Google just recently that Microsoft's cloud business isn't quite as good as investors are giving it credit for. They said that it's not as big as investors think it is, and it's actually not as profitable. In fact, they believe it's losing money. This is Google's internal report. Google says that their numbers show Azure had roughly a $3 billion operating loss in fiscal 2022. Now you can debate this. There's people saying this is just jealous Google trying to tear down one of their competitors. But I don't know. If Azure really is losing money right now, then their cloud business is not nearly anything close to what AWS is. AWS has like 30 to 40% operating profits. It's highly profitable. It's a cash generating machine for Amazon. And this is where I think that there's a tell here. There's one company that gives the most clear data about its cloud hosting, the most transparent, clear data, that is Amazon. They show what's really happening with their cloud business, the growth rates, the profitability, everything regarding cloud. Google obfuscates there's a little bit, but not as much as Microsoft. Microsoft obfuscates there's a ton. We really don't know what's going on with Microsoft. So when we're looking at the cloud companies, I think there's a reason why Amazon's willing to say, hey, look, this is our cloud business. We're okay. We don't have any problem showing it. And the other guys are trying to obfuscate and hide things and they're not, they're not quite as transparent about it. And although I think going into 2023, 
cloud is going to slow down across the board, I think it will slow down less with AWS. I think AWS's numbers are going to be more consistent throughout the year than Microsoft's or Google Cloud. We'll see, but that's my prediction. Prediction number eight, legacy media companies, the ones that are transitioning from cable into streaming, I think across the board, we're going to see budget cuts with the amount of money that they're spending on streaming. Just take a look at the news here. This is something that I think is coming and I think it's going to hamper these businesses growth. Warner Bros. Discovery loses $2.3 billion and hints at imminent price hike for HBO Max. They can try to hike the price, but I think it's inevitable. I think they're going to cut budget. They're going to cut their content spend. They're going to fire employees. We have Paramount Plus here. Latest report is they're growing okay. That's fine. They're, they're gaining subscribers. But then we have the numbers here. Adjusted operating income before depreciation and amortization showed a loss of $343 million, up from a loss of $198 million. So even as they're growing, their losses are increasing with streaming. They have not reached scale. We have Disney here. This company, it says right here in the headlines that they may have to cut costs as streaming loses money. How much money is Disney Plus losing? Well, this last quarter, the run rate right now is $1.5 billion. Since Disney Plus started, it's lost over $8 billion. It is a money-losing entity right now. It's not even really close to profitability. In fact, if we look at this across the board, all of these streaming services, Disney's losing money, Paramount's losing money, Warner Brothers Discovery's losing money, Comcast is losing money, Netflix is the only one that has positive operating metrics with their streaming service. And I really believe it's unavoidable. In 2023, you're going to hear announcements. Warner Brothers Discovery's cutting budget. Disney's cutting budget on Disney+. Plus. Paramount's going to be cutting budget. I think Comcast will too. All these companies have to because they're bleeding cash every single quarter by the billions, at least hundreds of millions, but in the billions. And their legacy businesses that are funding this, this constant cash bleed, those are in decline as well. So I think we're going to see some budget cuts. I think we're going to see some slowing growth in these type of legacy media streaming companies. And I think that will be an additional benefit to Netflix. I think it will be a benefit to Amazon and Apple TV+. Prediction number nine is that I think Google is not going to be threatened at all by this AI chatbot ChatGPT or any similar AI chat technology. There is predictions and concerns, and I even made a video about the subject about this pretty cool AI chatbot that can do things like write code. It can answer these detailed questions. It can write out YouTube scripts and do different things like that. But as I used it and the more I played with it, the more I realized all the flaws it has. Once you get over the little honeymoon phase with the chatbot, it almost becomes clear that not all of the data it provides is accurate. It frequently gets things wrong. There's no fact checking. But more than anything, I think the biggest problem with these AI chatbots is you get no optionality. You get no variance in the results. You just get it saying back one thing. And I think with Google search, the big thing that it has is it gives you options. It presents a lot of data and you get to look through and see what you like best. If you want a recipe for a certain food, it will give you YouTube videos and lots of different links with different recipes. It gives you a variety of results. And I think that variety is something that this chat GPT or any similar AI bot it just lacks, and I think that's something that people aren't going to like. So in my opinion, I think in 2023, I think we'll look back at the threat of ChatGPT and see that it really was never a threat at all. And finally, prediction number 10, I think that in 2023, Microsoft will be able to successfully close the acquisition of the Microsoft Activision acquisition. I think they'll be able to buy the company. 
Because frankly, I've looked over the complaints of the DOJ, and I think that they're very politically motivated. I think when it goes to court, and they're actually able to present real data and real arguments, and if there's any somewhat impartial judge, which I think most judges are, I have a, a very high view of most judges, I think they'll look at the case and they'll see that Microsoft has a stronger argument. The arguments that the DOJ are making are simply talking points from Sony, and I consider the arguments very weak. So when I've looked at this case and, and I look at each argument and I try to look at it as unbiased as possible, I can see why Microsoft is looking at this and thinking, we can win this. This is something we're willing to fight because we feel like we have a very strong case. Microsoft said that they're happy to present their case in court. Now, this could go south. There's always a chance. I think that if it did, the calculation that Microsoft would be making is it's basically not worth their time. If it gets wrapped up into a multi-year litigation thing where there's just no end in sight and it's distracting them from working on their products, I think they could just pull the plug on it and not do this acquisition. But I think they're really going to fight for it. I don't think they're going to give up. I think Microsoft is going to go to court. They're going to argue their case. I think if the judge is somewhat impartial, they'll rule in favor of Microsoft. So final prediction of 2023 is I think the Activision acquisition will close. So that's it. That's the 10 predictions for 2023. Let me know what you think. If I got any of them wrong, let me know in the comments. I read over all the comments. I might, I might throw you a reply. And I'll do a follow-up on this video at the end of next year to see how this played out, to see which ones I got right and which ones I got wrong. But that's it for now. Hope you enjoyed. See you in the next one.